0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full spectrum spirituality. That is, it looks at the shadow elements of being, the light aspects of being, and how we can promote a unified harmonization of the two. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm delighted that you're here. This episode is the second Dharma talk that I'm releasing from our new online Sangha offerings. So in this talk, I continue with some themes that I started in the first talk on wise friendship and how wise friendship plays into the development and cultivation of a spiritual path. Specifically, I've been looking at how we can apply qualities of friendship to our experience of meditation and yoga as we develop our practice. And in this talk, I look at a part of ourselves or a subpart that can make that friendship difficult. Specifically, there's a part that some psychologists refer to as the inner critic, the ever judgmental, ever sarcastic, ever sort of self-bullying, self-loathing part of ourselves that is never content or happy with whatever we're doing. That, And then when that shows up in practice, specifically around how we're doing in our meditation or yoga practice, it can be... Kind a really difficult energy to work with. So I offer some ideas on how to start to work with that part of ourselves in this talk. But I should say that in giving the talk, it became clear to me while I was giving it, it became clear that this is a theme that I will probably need to address in greater detail. So please consider this talk as more of an introduction to how to consider working with the inner critic. Uh, and there's gonna be other things I say about it in the next talk but a short word on structure here. Uh, the talk itself is about 30 minutes, and then after that I give a guided meditation where the theme of the talk will be integrated into how we can work with it, with it in the uh, in meditation practice. But in the guided meditation section, there's guidance for about 15 minutes or so, and then there will be periods of silence and for uh, sort of economy of time and, and space issues, We are removing the silent portion of the guided meditation in the podcast format. Um, If you would like to have the full guided meditation, as well as the Q&A and all the classes, the yin and qigong classes and yin yoga and yang yoga classes that we offer in the Sangha, please consider joining as a member. There will be a link in the show notes for this. You can go to joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A, And there you'll see the flexible membership model we have. You can either join as a sustaining member where you provide a modest amount of financial support to us for the classes and participation in the Sangha. Or you can join as a beneficiary member where you allow us to practice generosity, giving you the teachings for free. Either way, we're welcoming you to join us along this path together. Okay, so here is the Dharma talk and guided meditation on beginning to work with the inner critic with friendship in practice. So I want to begin tonight's talk with a quick review from last week. And and, and that's one of the nice things about um, that I'm anticipating about this framework that we're working with and that we have four classes together over the course of a week is that um, i can slowly build and develop themes over a long protracted period of time which is difficult to do um, in regular classes Um, it's it's certainly hard for me to do that in trainings because i only have you for four days so i'm particularly excited about this opportunity to sort of uh, practice with you over the course of a long period of time and, and really develop uh, some some specific themes, and the theme I started last week was the theme of friendship, and I, I kind of built on built the talk around this curious exchange between the Buddha and his cousin, where the cousin Ananda asked the Buddha if if one half of the spiritual life is good friendship. Um, you know, he's essentially asking, what role does companionship, good friendship play in the, in the holy life? And the Buddha's answer is, is very direct. And he says, well, uh, friendship isn't one half of the path. It's good friendship, wise friendship is the entirety of the path, the entirety of the holy life. And as I said last week, that's that's hard to reconcile with some of the other statements that you that are Properly made it into our, our mind around what the Buddha was saying, um, what, specifically in reference to times where he said, "Be a lamp unto yourself." Um, you know, you yourself are the are the final um, sort of judge on whether something's wise or not. So there's a tremendous emphasis on self-reliance. Um, and the way I tried to square that last week was by suggesting that perhaps friendship, as a foundation of the path. On upon which all kinds of insights and 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 developed perceptions of reality to, uh, come to us, uh, friendships is is the foundation of that. And if we approach fra- f- friendship from the place of a foundation, we can begin by uh, encouraging ourselves to become friendly towards our experience and ourselves as we practice. And I think that's a really good way to begin meditating. Whether you've been meditating for a long time. Or if you're just starting, before we before you get into specific techniques, specific types of uh, perception, it's it really behooves us, I think, to develop this this firm foundation, so that we're not adding unnecessary conflict, tension, and frustration in our in our spiritual life. Um, so, in encouraging you to develop and cultivate friendship towards your experience. Within the meditation that we did last week, I tried to speak about two broad uh, dynamics that go on within any style of meditation that you might encounter. And I could describe those two di- dynamics with, with two headers. One is the, the phase or the dynamic when you're awake. And you could add specifics to that. Like you're awake and you're specifically doing what the meditation is saying to do. You're a good meditator. You're either watching your breath. You're repeating loving kindness phrases. You're just doing what the instructions say because you're awake and you're there and you know that you're there. And then in contrast to the waking up or the wakeful dynamic of meditation, there's going to be the drifting off, uh, wandering dynamic. Where, as uh, the Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer would put it, she says, the lights are on and nobody's home. And you're not even home to know that nobody's home. You just checked out, Um, and that's the the the, usually that's the dynamic, the the drifting off dynamic that a vast majority of practices and techniques try to diminish, and they don't really see any value in the drifting off content or the drifting off experience. So there's often uh, a lot of instructions, sort of voiced in a way where you're trying to anchor your attention to something, anything that will serve you from wandering into this sort of hell realm of your own mind of drifting off, whatever you need, whether it's your body, whether it's a, a, a mala bead set, whether it's a mantra, whether it's a candle flame, whether it's uh, you know a, a repetition of a certain phrase, these are all often used as a way to prevent the drifting off from occurring. Um, and so long within those systems, so long as you're still awake uh, in the wake, waking up phase you're in the you're, you're awake and aware and you're doing the practice you'll feel good but each and every time you experience yourself in the drifting off phase there tends to be a way that that noticing that recognition that you got lost that you got pulled away that you drifted that that recognition of it tends to come on the heels or anticipate actually it tends to uh, come very close to uh, sequentially with an experience of inner judgment where we we kind of voice to ourselves that this was, you made a mistake, you were doing great when you were with a breath, but whatever uh, monkey mind territory we're in is is not, uh, not, not a good thing, and we need to try to stop that. Now, I have more to say about that shortly, the drifting off phase, but the way I began last week was to suggest that in, at least for a while in the beginning, and this is not where we're, gonna, we're not going to hang out in this zone forever and ever, but it, for a good while, and I mean several weeks to even several months, and you'll all have to sort of evaluate when and where it makes sense to move beyond this instruction I'm suggesting you start with. But <clears throat> the, my, my, uh, what I was trying to get to last week was rather than trying to, from the beginning, interrupt this very natural process of drifting off, and rather than trying to curtail that or minimize it, instead of doing that, my recommendation was to firmly and, 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 and culti- firmly and cultivate the intention to be gentle and friendly towards that dynamic, but to not make that experience um, confirmation that you're failing, that it's actually just part of the process, and that you can be gentle to it. Now, while it's occurring. When, like as Alan Lang would say, when you, when you, when the lights are on, nobody's home, you can't do very much while that's occurring. So when the, when, when you are in the drifting off phase, you're just, you're hijacked and along for the ride. And there's really not much you can do other than when you realize you've, that you have been hijacked, that you've been drifted, you've been carried into the drifting off phase at that point, rather than kind of, uh, Issuing a, a harsh statement around failure towards yourself, like you stupid idiot meditator, why couldn't you just stay with whatever you're focused on? Rather than doing that, my, my recommendation was to be gentle with that and to be to cultivate and lean into that noticing with kindness, with friendship. Just as you would receive someone that you like that maybe traveled long distance to come stay with you for a while. You you greet them with open arms. You've been looking forward to seeing them. So when you realize that You've drifted off. That was my first suggestion. So just to, to not make a fuss about it, not make a problem of it. Don't self-flagellate. Don't don't engage in the spiritual wrist slaps. Just be gentle to it. Like, okay, that happened. We can receive that. And now what, what's going on? But there's so that's the beginning. But um, inevitably, I think, and this is what I'll get to now more, is that. When people experience themselves drifting off, I can't speak for everybody, but I think one of the reasons why this feels so ugly, if you will, it feels so incorrect to let your mind wander, one of the theories I have is that when we witness how frequently, how constantly the mind drifts on its own without a central intention to drift coming from our executive centers. Meaning we don't sort of issue, we're not focusing on our body and breath or our hands and suddenly having the decision, okay, now it's time to drift, go for it, Josh, or whatever your name is. We don't use, it's not how it plays out. We're just there minding our own business. And next thing you know, we get, we get hijacked or, or kidnapped. So, seeing that over and over again is uncomfortable, I think, because it threatens a self-image that we have, and the self image that it threatens is the image that uh at the end of the day we're pretty well put together. we're in control, we've got our you know our stuff together. we're the ones pulling the levers and in, in kind of. As an analogy here, we imagine ourselves the puppeteer of our life. We're the ones in charge, adjusting the strings and pulling the levers so that things move in the direction we want. But when we sit down and look under the hood or peer under the hood of our consciousness, we encounter an entirely different set of data about who and what we are. It's an entirely different picture when we actually stop to look. And you know, to, to use that analogy of the puppeteer, we start to see that we're less and less the puppeteer and more and more the herky-jerky puppet along for the ride, and that's not comfortable. So most people, and, and this is very understandable, most people go to meditation and they hear instructions like anchor the mind, sedate the monkey mind, ground, center, do all those things to prevent the mind from wandering. And that's essentially a stratagem of control. If we can just control this nuisance of a wandering, drifting, uh, ADHD mind, then we'll be happy. And there's nothing wrong with controlling things that you can try to control. But if controlling the mind were the answer or getting the mind to stop thinking in random ways was the answer, then I don't think any of you would be here because you all have great great practice in exerting control in your life. You got into adult life. You learn how to manage things to the best of your ability. And if you knew how to control the, thing, the things going on between your ears, likely you would have been able to do that. And so rather than uh, what my case would be, rather than, and this is definitely in line with Buddhism, rather than trying to control the nature of what goes on, and, and here I, I should interject, I do know that popular forms of Buddhism really try to, you know, speak to ways to control the monkey mind. So I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm completely overriding the the conventional norm within that tradition. But if we seek to understand the nature of things, the natural state of things, and if we seek to become in harmony and at peace with the natural state of things, what I'm going to suggest is that we let our being be natural. Let the entirety of our being be natural. Just let it be what it is. And in seeing the nature and seeing how the mind has this relentless tendency to wander adrift, to swing from branch to branch, we can then start to become better, uh, better able to relate to it in a way that doesn't proliferate or spin out into greater and greater distress or suffering or anxiety. A simpler way of putting that might be rather than trying to get our thinking mind to um, subside or stop or get quiet or not swing from branch to branch. I would frame the practice more as we're learning how to wake up out of our sense of self that is defined and identified with the thinker that has these thoughts. It's like, if you think about a teapot for a second, my hands here, are like a teapot, if you're in the teapot, believing that you're the thinker, whatever the content of that think of a teapot is, it's going to be pretty claustrophobic and hot and and and, and jammed and that's you know, it's like be, meditating where you're trying to stop our thoughts is like being in the teapot trying to get the hot water to get cooler okay, it will happen obviously through second law of thermodynamics if i'm correct there the teapot will get cooler over time but what i'm proposing here is that not so much getting the teapot to change or the water, the content of the water, the temperature of the water to change. I'm suggesting we can actually learn to shift out of our identity as being in the teapot. And then there's no longer any problem with whatever's going on in the teapot. And that's a shift that's available to all of us. And within the meditation, the meditation suggests or points to a way that that dynamic is already in our process, it's already happening. And by that, I mean, every time we wander, something wakes us up. Now, oftentimes the thing that wakes us up and pulls us out of the the machinations of our own mind, and then pulls us up is something from the environment, a dog barking, a door slamming, footsteps overhead, a twinge in your foot. a a tingling in your knee, an ache in your rhomboids, some form of sensory impingement, usually, not always, but usually, sort of stings us with its prod, and we wake up. We wake up out of the trance of being in the drifting off phase of being lost, and we come back to realizing we're here. So, what I'm trying to get to is that this is actually a quite natural process. Meditation can be extremely natural. You just let nature express itself. And one part of nature, the part of nature within our own brain, is that the brain will wander. The brain will drift off into things. And I had a quote here that I want to share, just so you know, that you're on firm footing. When you experience your mind drifting again and again and again, You're on firm footing in terms of understanding the experience of what it's like to be human. There's another psychologist from Harvard named Steven Pinker who's written a lot about the mind and consciousness. And he has this to say, and I'll just read it directly. He says, quote, another startling thing about consciousness is that the intuitive feeling we have the intuitive feeling we have that there's an executive eye that sits in the control room of our brain, an executive eye that's scanning the screens of the senses and pushing the buttons of our muscles. This sense is an illusion. Steven Pinker is not a Buddhist, he's not a yoga practitioner, he's a hard nosed materialistic scientist. Consciousness, he says, turns out to to consist of a maelstrom of events distributed across the brain. These events compete for attention, and as one process outshouts the others, the brain rationalizes the outcome after the fact and concocts the impression that a single self was in charge all along. Now, you don't need to pay a lot of money to be, go into an fMRI tube to have your brain monitored to confirm that statement. We do it every day when we meditate. Every day, our subjective experience of meditation proves Steven Pinker's point. We're there, minding our own business. Executively, that's what we're trying to do. Bring attention, a quality sense of presence to our experience. And Seemingly out of nowhere, we get catapulted into another world. And we don't even know we're in another world for a good period of time, at least neurologically, it's a long period of time. It could be three seconds. That's like three eons in terms of neurological space time. But we get catapulted into another world. And then this world wakes us up again. The body says something, the environment says something. Or you may hear the meditator voice say something. I always imagine my meditator voice is sort of a a British butler. I say, sir, we're meditating now. Oh, yes, thanks, Jeeves, right back here. So something prods us awake. And one of the things I want to encourage in tonight's session is when we meditate is that we can let the world, let reality prod us awake. We don't have to, as the meditator, we don't have to uh, gun for being awake. We don't have to tell ourselves, be awake now, be awake now. Let's come back, come back, come back. We can just relax, and in a very receptive, gentle, friendly way, friendship, cultivating friendship towards the waking up, towards the drifting off, we can let reality more and more start to awaken us. Now, what I'm going to say next is related to really any style of meditation that you might do. So you, whether you're, you're sort of following along with the general recommendations I'm giving or you're including previous practices, which you've done elsewhere uh, within this, this approach that I'm suggesting, which is totally fine to do and I encourage you to. But with any style of meditation, <clears throat> there's usually going to be uh, periods of time when you become quite aware of a voice in you that is excessively, um, it's the right word, a voice in you that's excessively critical, that's excessively harsh, that's judgmental, that's never impressed with what you're doing. And that voice gets the the moniker, the inner critic. And, um, you know, if you're, I was thinking about this before the the talk, Examples of what my inner critic might sound like, you know, you have to remember that I'm born and bred around Boston. So in the in the years when I was focusing on my breath as the central point of my meditation, and then I would catch myself being off the breath, you know, there might be some voice like, Are you kidding me, dude? What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Why can't you why can't you keep your attention on the target of the breath? It can't be that hard, dude. Come on, what do you got? ADHD? And then another part of me, the meditator that had been taught by by nice, kind, meaning teachers would say, look, um, it's not time to be so harsh. We have to practice non because So could you take your judgmental attitude and just sit out for a little while? I really don't appreciate you sharing. Thanks for sharing. But just sit in the corner quietly while I'm here meditating. And then. You know, when I come to more of this type of approach, which is more loose and open-ended and, you know, open awareness style practice, let's say I was practicing with the intention to bring kind, gentle friendship to my experience. And this inner critic might see what I'm doing and start to editorialize and say something like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, this is all great, but uh, look, dude, don't forget, you ain't no saint. And if you need confirmation of your lack of saintliness, I've got a whole litany of things I could take off for you right now. And I say, look, as the meditator, I'd say, you, my, my inner critic, you are not the boss of me. I am here to see that you are a changing, transient, impermanent phenomenon. I'm aware of you. You are not me. Please be gone. And, of course, I'm trying to dramatize these, these debates and inner struggles. but they they are real when you practice when you look in when you ente- endeavor to do anything if you're listening you'll likely hear this voice of the inner critic and you will likely try to uh, reframe its experience or your experience with it along spiritual suggestions and majority of times you know when 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 this topic has come up for me with teachers it's often framed like don't be so hard on yourself practice self compassion practice self self love Um, thank the critic for sharing, but just let it sit in the corner quietly. And usually there's this kind of patronizing disdain for the voice of the critic. Um, And for some people that works. For me, it didn't really work. There's something that always rang slightly false about this kind of saccharinated way of working with the inner voice of the inner critic. And I think I was able to put my finger on it recently, I was driving somewhere and I happened to hear a, a talk on NPR. It was a replay of a conversation of an interview with Ira Glass, who is the host of This American Life. And um, Ira Glass was talking about his experience in becoming an artist in terms of a, a, a creative journalist of sorts. And I I, I loved what he said so much that I I went to look, find the transcript, and I I wrote a section of it down. And I want to share this with you in context of working with the critic, the inner critic. But Ira Glass said this about creativity. says, nobody tells this to people who are beginners. And I really wish somebody had told this to me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste but it's like there is this gap for the first couple of years that you're making stuff what you're making isn't so good it's not that great it's trying to be good it has ambition to be good but it's not that good but your taste the thing that got you into the game is still killer the taste is killer And your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. Now, a lot of people never get past that phase. They'll quit. But he says, if you're just starting out or if you're still in this phase of your development, you got to know that it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is a lot of work do a huge volume of work, and it goes on from there. But you could say here, the work we're doing is the practice. We're practicing together. And this is what excites me about the Sangha, is that we can all hold each other accountable now in a, in a more consistent, ongoing way to, to reaffirm our commitment to this inner work of spiritual practice. And I see practice, spiritual practice, as a form of creativity, which is why I like the Ira Glass statement so much. We get drawn to practice because we maybe read a book, we hear a talk, and the good taste in us recognizes a better way to be alive, a more flourishing, less reactive, um, more present way of being. Our inner sensibility of taste alights around that possibility. And then we practice. And we observe ourselves in our life. And we might find ourselves coming up short rather frequently, particularly um, in the first maybe two decades of your practice. <laughs> it's not just like a couple of years. It's like, if you're paying attention, there will be ob- there are many uh, examples and um, sort of a museum of, of experiences that remind you that you're falling short of your taste, your good taste. But here's the connection I want to make. The discrepancy between your taste and your skill in spirituality often gets voiced through the part of the inner critic. The inner critic is pointing out what's possible, what's, what you can imagine to be possible. And your experience is reminding you where your skill set is right now. And rather than disparaging that inner critic rather than trying to get rid of it and say, no, 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 thank you. You have nothing but nothing good to offer me. I want to encourage a kind of friendship towards the inner critic's voice itself so that we can maybe transform its energy from that of a bully, because sometimes that's what you feel, like this, this part of us is menacing and kind of bullying us around. Transform it from a bully to an ally so that when you hear this voice of judgment, it's not seen as something you have to stop or, or silence or smother, but it's actually something you can, a voice you can take in, listen to, see what it has to say, thank it, and continue on with the practice with its input, if you, if you like. Um, so I do see spirituality as a kind of creative process. And it's an interesting one in in that you're not, the the object that you're working with isn't a pot of clay or it's not a canvas with paints. It's not a piece of music. The object is your own being. So in spirituality, I could, you could say that you are both the subject, the one, the artist engaged with the process and you are the creative process or creative object that you're working with. Um, And your good taste got you here. So when you notice that your mind has issue with something i really recommend just acknowledging that and say thank you thanks thank you my inner voice of good taste now let me practice to move slowly and gradually in the direction that you're pointing so it doesn't have to you don't have to beat yourself up for having this voice you don't have to uh, sort of amputate the aspect of you that's, that's, that's articulated, it can be brought in as part of the path. And, um, for more on that, I'll say, I do recommend if, if you haven't heard it yet, check out the podcast interview I did with Dr. Richard Schwartz, who has a whole model of inner uh, psychotherapy, working with our inner parts. He's great, some great ideas to apply there. And the, the episode just after that, I gave a, a kind of, uh, formula for how I dialogue and, and try to transform the energies of my inner parts within the process of meditation. So those those are things you can check out. But tonight, when we meditate, the, 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 there's not going to be a ton of difference in the instruction, though, and I will give some guidance when we sit together. But uh, as, a, as a cue for the for the overall session, there's going to be two broad phases, drifting off, waking up, waking up, and drifting off. Rather than trying to only be with one, primarily the waking up phase, I encourage you just to relax and let those two phases toggle back and forth. At times you'll be awake, sometimes you'll be drifting. You'll be awake and drifting. Reality will will call you back. Your body, your mind, at times, and or your environment, they will they will issue uh, sensory experiences that that pin and pin on you to bring you back. As that occurs. Just be gentle and kind and friendly to that, but particular be on the lookout and listen for any of the uncharitable, somewhat snarky, sarcastically unhelpful voices that may be giving you a hard time or that you may perceive as giving you a hard time that might feel contrary or contradictory to the the whole agenda of a spiritual path and meditation. You hear those voices, listen to them for a second, really get a clear sense of what they're saying and see if there's some way, and there may not be, but see if there's some way that that voice is, is reminding you of your, of what you value and reminding you of your taste around what you value. You know, and, and it, it's not bad to listen to this. It's, it, I was thinking about when I cook, um, depending on what I cook, sometimes i'm I'm very interested in, in interested in getting feedback on a dish so that I know how to make it better. So this in the meditation process, you're going to get that inner feedback from yourself, usually. You know, the inner critic will have ideas about how it's going. You listen to it, see if it has any wisdom in it. And I think over time, as you get more familiar with it, the idea is that 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 voice will transform. From this bullying, disruptive, maybe seemingly unhelpful role to more of an ally in that it's, it's, it's holding the line for your discernment. Discerning what is skillful, what's not skillful, what's wise, what's not wise, what's kind, what's not kind. This is something that you will come to an intuitive sense with on your own as this ability to see into your experience more clearly develops and, and takes root. So I think that's a good pausing point for the meditation, um, and now we will go from there into a, a sitting, a sitting together, and um, and then afterwards, if there are any questions or comments or observations, we can uh, open up for some dialogue. So please just come and sit comfortably, either on the floor and a few cushions, or if you're in a chair, you can sit. In the chair, uh, just w- with the chair, I do recommend sitting forward slightly so that your back isn't le- leaning against the, 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 the back of the seat, which can kind of induce uh, a hypnagogic catatonic state. Um, so upward, upright, alert, and relaxed. And
1: we'll begin. So as we begin sitting,
0: it's often really helpful from the start to realign with uh, some central aspirations within the practice. And I'll offer a few, but then I'll leave some time and, and feel free to adapt or rephrase or substitute any of the intentions that I'm, I'm speaking to. From one level, our practice is an opportunity to connect, connect more intimately to the inner terrain, inner terrain of the body, energy, emotions, views, thoughts, fears,
1: etc. So we're cultivating capacity, relational capacity
0: to connect with kindness, gentleness, tolerance, spaciousness. From this connection, we're also, and we'll be emphasizing this more in the future, but we'll also be developing
1: capacities for sharper, clearer, less distorted perception.
0: Joseph Goldstein often says meditation as elements that are artistic There's an art of practice. And there's a science of practice.
1: Connecting with wisdom and compassion and kindness is the art of relationship
0: and refining and sharpening our capacity to see would fit more under the the science side of it, inner science of exploring and understanding
1: who and what we are. And
0: the basic idea is that with good tools of connection, good tools of perception, we're better able to operate in our lives with kindness, compassion, and wisdom that benefits ourselves. And that's also a benefit to anyone we encounter. So this isn't about just like yoga is not about putting your leg behind your head. Meditation isn't about becoming a superhuman uh, meditator that can go into exotic altered states or inner worlds of bliss and transcendence.
1: This practice is one of carving
0: out time to open to the truth of what it is. So that preamble just give you a little bit of time to poise for yourself your own aspirations, your own intentions, either
1: using the ones some of the ones I gave or designing your own. Now, from these intentions, I just want to review some of the basic instructions.
0: The first thing is to give yourself a, a point of experience that you can allow your attention to rest on. And the simpler, less complicated this experience is, the better, I think. So this is why i become a fan of just suggesting, let your awareness rest on your hands in contact with your lap or feel the ordinary pressure of your sit bones against your seat. Hopefully these these points of contact are not challenging to encounter or find. They don't require paranormal powers of attention or concentration to to notice them. They're just quite obvious and
1: easily accessible. And the simple point
0: of contact functions as a perch. It's where you can let your attention rest, as and when you see fit. It's
1: not that you keep your attention on the perch as a rule. It's just an option of where you can let your attention go while meditating. And then with the two
0: broad dynamics that I was Mentioning in the talk, drifting off and waking up. The waking up phase would include being aware that you're resting your attention on the perch. But the waking up would also include noticing anything going on within the field of your awareness.
1: Nothing needs to be excluded. And so when you are in a waking up phase, when you're awake, the only additional instruction would be to plant the intention
0: to receive what's emerging within the phase of being awake receive those experiences with this attitude or mindset of friendship.
1: You don't have to be fake, we don't have to pretend we like everything.
0: It's the wholehearted, authentic presence that receives and knows what's occurring.
1: The other half of common dynamic in meditation is the drifting off dynamic.
0: Take flight, mind departs from the perch and takes flight into a world of its own creation. Pretty amazing that this can happen.
1: But when that dynamic
0: is going on, for large portions of it, we may not be fully cognizant that it's occurring. We're conscious.
1: I mean, we haven't gone to sleep. We're not necessarily aware that we're aware that it's occurring. Kind of get embedded into the storyline. And when that happens, as I tried to say earlier, there's nothing to be done. As long as your consciousness is still embedded in the story, that consciousness can't get you out. But reality will take you out. The world of our senses will call us back. And literally in the last 20 seconds, I heard every example that I mentioned in the talk, dog barked, door shut, bang of something overhead, an itch on my ankle. The world of our senses wakes us up. that happens rather spontaneously. Not necessarily because the meditator in us decided it to happen or willed it to happen. It happens very naturally.
0: But what's unique, and you could say this happens throughout the day under normal waking hours, But the key thing in the meditation is that when it happens, we can can do an immediate compare and contrast of what it's like when we're lost and when we're back.
1: What is the quality of presence like
0: when we're here and sober and aware? And what is our experience, quality of experience felt to be like when we're lost, intoxicated,
1: and entranced? particularly when you're present. It may be good to offer gentle reminders, gentle reminders to be friendly, light, spacious within whatever may be going on. This is the practice.
0: Our good taste prods us to greater capacities of kindness, friendship, compassion,
1: and wisdom. And meditation is the dynamic of the practice itself. We're practicing meeting a sound meeting a thought or anything within the body meeting and
0: greeting these experiences with an energy different from our habitual conditioned reactivity
1: And from time to time, if you
0: do hear or notice a voice of harshness, criticism, or judgment about how you're doing in the meditation, I'm specifically talking about the critic that criticizes your ability or your performance as a meditator. What would it mean to bring a little bit of kindness to that voice? What would it it mean to listen
1: with sincere receptivity to its opinions? To listen fully to these?
0: And then whatever it has to say, thanking it for its input, but rather than turn it away from it, channeling its concerns, channeling the energy behind its statements into your ongoing practice in
1: this moment.
0: We don't wake up by cutting out the inner critic. We can wake up by integrating and transforming it into our the overall
1: experience of our being. So for the remainder of the sitting, relaxing, softening, there's no other experience to have than the one you're having right now. Kindness and friendliness to the drifting, kindness and friendliness to the waking. an open, undefended listening to the critic as and when it says its peace.
0: Okay, so that's the talk and guided meditation for this week. If you enjoyed it, please consider joining as a member. Again, you can go to joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A which will give you access to all our live weekly offerings in addition to the recordings that are archived in our library on our site. So if you miss a live session, you'll always have access that in our uh, archived library on the website. So one way or another, you'll you'll be able to continue practicing and, and working with the themes that we're sharing. Thanks so much for your practice and patience and attention today. I wish you a safe and sane week Stay strong out there, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.